So over the last month or so, we have been focused on several important practices that define and shape us as followers of Jesus and members of our church. So we've looked at practices such as regularly attending church, confession, communion, and baptism. And through these, we can engage more meaningfully both with our corporate life as church, community, while also deepening our walk with God. So now, in the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we practice the observation of Advent. And as Graham has said, it's a time of both expectant waiting and preparation for the birth of Jesus at Christmas. Looking backwards, looking into the present and looking forward. And it's a time to reflect on the significance of God's gift in Jesus. And each Sunday we're going to be lighting a candle which symbolise four important themes. Faith, hope, faith, joy and peace. There's actually some variations on that, but we're choosing those four. So today we're spending a few minutes considering this idea of hope. So what is hope? Now in our contemporary secular age, hope's become synonymous with looking forward to or the possibility of something generally over which we play a fairly passive role, usually with little control over the outcome. So I actually didn't have a lot of control over whether I was going to find my ring or not. There's an inbuilt element of doubt as to whether our hopes will be fulfilled. And the world's hope is generally based on people, events or things over which we can't be at all certain will deliver our expectations. We hope for fine weather so we can get out fishing. We hope for a good diagnosis. We hope everything will work out well. When our hopes become too far-fetched, we call them wishful thinking. Dashed or unfulfilled hopes therefore leave us feeling disempowered, discouraged and pretty hopeless and despair. I was actually reminded of this this week when I was shopping in the supermarket and plastered all over the walls and windows with the posters, Make Christmas Magic. And perhaps cynically, I drove out of the car park thinking how such alliterative marketing phrases set us up with expectations so far in excess of reality. How on earth can Christmas be magic? So how similar or different is our hope as Christians? Now the two Hebrew words for hope in the Old Testament, and excuse, excuses, my, my apologies for anyone who are scholars of Hebrew, are yakal and tikva. Now yakal means to wait or be patient, and is also translated as hope. And it, it's associated with the idea of waiting or putting our hope in God because of what he's promised what is said or what is done. Tekfah is associated, as, it's got a connotations of a cord that's really stretched um, or attachment. So it's, it has a sense of tension um, or expectation while something, waiting for something to happen. Like when you pull a cord really tight to produce something really tense, but like when you've got a fish on the line, I guess. So biblical hope is tied up with faith. You can't have one without the other. Faith and hope.
sides of the same coin. And our hope as Christians is based on faith, our faith in God. Biblical, found, biblical hope takes its foundation from faith. As the writer of Hebrews reminds us, faith is the substance of things hoped for. We can't have one without the other. So unlike today's secular definition of hope, hope is not mere wishful thinking about something that might, not, might or might not happen. Biblical hope instead is based on what God has done, what he's doing today, and what he's promised to do in the future. It's a confident, assured expectation that something will happen and that we can wait for with joy and expectation. So here we're going to look at three aspects of Christian hope, a little bit more specifically. Firstly, our hope is founded on the faithfulness of God because he has fulfilled his promises. History shows he's been true to his word. Secondly, we have hope because of what he's done through the birth, death and resurrection of Jesus. And thirdly, we have hope, not despair, that there is a reality beyond what we see now. We have hope because we know how the story ends. Let's now turn to this passage that John read from Matthew and see how this genealogy illustrates biblical hope. This passage from the first chapter of Matthew opens up the New Testament for us. Now for many of us, when we read a genealogy in scripture, we're often tempted to hurriedly gloss over it. We see genealogies as a bit irrelevant to our purposes. And we fall into that modern trap of misunderstanding and neglecting the contemporary culture and context for which, for whom they were written. And only when we pay attention to this do we understand and appreciate why genealogies have such importance in scripture. So for the Jews for which this passage was written, this passage was really important in showing the faithfulness of God and fulfilling his promises. Scholars of the New Testament agree that Matthew's Gospel was written for a Jewish audience. It was most probably written during the early church period, during the first century AD, when the church was actually still largely Jewish. And the primary purposes of Matthew's Gospel in particular is to show how all the prophecies and the promises of God throughout the Old Testament are now fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. Christ is revealed as Israel's Messiah in the long-awaited Emmanuel, the living embodiment, the incarnation of Israel's God. So far from being something boring to gloss over, as Tom Wright notes, this genealogy would have been electrifying for first century Jew. From first from the first verse, the purpose of this genealogy is to trace Jesus' birth right back to Abraham. As Tom Wright notes, this is in three stages, and it's wonderful when you start digging deeply into scripture. Abraham to David, David to the exile, and the exile to Jesus. Now, as we all know, 
7 is the perfection, number of perfection in scripture. So in each of those three stages, there are 14 generations, which is, so there are six sevens. Now comes perfection, the goal, the seventh seven. So Jesus represents the, the seventh seven, the climax of all these um, generations. So to a, a Jew who's waiting for this Messiah, he would, a Jew would be able to see the link. This is actually the climax of, of, of God's promises for a Messiah. Now, I read my grandchildren heaps of stories, and the fairy stories generally begin with once upon a time. And legends abound with mythical creatures who descend from the sky or arise from subterranean kingdoms. And as this Christmas season approaches, our marketing friends bombard us with all manner of myths around Christmas, the one I've just referred to. And we raise as children to believe the fantastical story of a big, fat, red-suited old man who arrives on reindeer and who somehow manages to climb down every chimney in the world to deliver sacks of gifts to expectant and hopeful children before downing a glass of milk and some cookies on the bench and heading on to the next household. And it's amazing, isn't it, as children, how you like to believe, you actually can believe all that. And yet, our hope, as I've just said, looking at this genealogy, is based on a narrative that's rooted in historical fact. This Christmas story is founded on fact, not fantasy. It's a family tree. It gives an account of the lives of men and women from whom Jesus was descended and born to Bethlehem to, to Mary and Joseph. It's the factual account of a man securely placed through blood relationships in a family tree of a nine household. If we placed our trust and hope in a mythical Jesus, if all this is just a myth or a legend, we actually can't be saved by grace. But this genealogy in Matthew gives us the confidence that our hope is indeed placed in a real historical figure who was both truly human and truly divine. Now there are several things to note here. For the Jewish readers of the scriptures, amongst the scribes, the rabbis, the children, the poor, who knew their Old Testament, the Messiah was to be descended from the line of David, the founder of the royal line. He was to be born of a special family. So this genealogy at the start of the New Testament immediately directs our attention to the evidence of God's faithfulness. His promises were faithfully kept. He was the fulfilment of hope and the faith of generations of Israelites. As prophesied in Isaiah 9, he will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Almighty will accomplish this. Now the Old Testament is full of examples time and time again of the sins of the nation of Israel. They weren't faithful to God. More, time and time again they deviated from God's plan and they turned away from God. They made poor choices. They disappointed 
and they rejected God. Yet Israel could not outsin God. No sin of the nation of Israel was too great to derail God's redemptive plan, his plan to rescue mankind and to send a Messiah to ultimately save his people. <clears throat> as Nehemiah 9 reminds us in verse 28, as soon as they were at rest, they did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the land of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven. And in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. You see, God's rescue plan for mankind was bigger than all of Israel's sinful history. His faithfulness to his covenant was shown time after time after time. And you see, it's the same for us. Because we are now grafted into that family tree. We cannot, too, like the Israelites, we can't outsin the promises of God. Our hope then is based firstly on the faithfulness of God to keep his word. Secondly, we have hope based on our faith in the life of Jesus' incarnation his death and resurrection, and what it's won for us. If these first 17 verses of Matthew establish the fulfilment of God's promises and his faithfulness to bring in a Messiah, they also signpost the nature of that kingdom which Jesus has come to usher in. It marks the end of our exile in darkness. When we place our faith and hope in Jesus, we relinquish, we hand over our spiritual self-sufficiency, our pride, our willingness to do life on our own. And instead, we are invited into a life where we unconditionally are loved and accepted by the grace of the one who sits at the right hand of God. We are exchanging a life of bondage to sin for one of freedom under grace. The scripture reminds us those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. We're focused on this hope in Advent. Matthew's genealogy signposts the end of darkness and exile. And this is on two levels. This is not just for the nation of Israel, but for all mankind. As John read in verse 12 of Matthew 1, it mentions after the exile to Babylon. Now the Babylonian exile is the only event mentioned in that passage. Because the rest of the passage is all about the record of names. Now Jesus is born um, 400 years after Israel's Babylonian exile. And that's been a 400-year period of darkness and silence for the nation of Israel following the Babylonian exile. Now, it's interesting to compare Matthew's genealogy with the one found in Luke, chapter 3. Because Luke's genealogy traces Jesus' line back to Adam. 
So Luke's genealogy reminds us that exile isn't just stretched back to the Babylonian exile, it goes all the way back to Adam, back to any physical Babylonian exile. On the one level is the political and physical exile of Israel under Babylon, but on a much deeper level is the exile of mankind through Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden in Genesis. So it's not the physical and political exile Jesus has come to end, it's the spiritual exile of mankind. <coughs> it's the darkness of the broken relationship with God which Jesus has come to put to finish. Yes, he's come to save his people and establish Israel's kingdom in a new, as a new David, but it's as a rescuer from their sins. And we are part of this very genealogy. Do we realise the gravity of this? We are part of this, we've been grafted into this family tree. So this is the foundation of our hope, to be rescued from the darkness of sin in our lives, to be free from that exile, to be unconditionally loved and accepted as recipients of his grace. Sometimes we kind of forget this. We get so caught up in the world's hope, we forget the gravitas of the hope that we have in Jesus, the eternal hope. And this hope that we have in Jesus actually turns the world's values fully upside down. And I believe this too is actually signposted or signalled in Matthew's genealogy. Now genealogies are lines of descent traced from an ancestor. Now in our Western culture, tracing our genealogies has become a more recent, less common phenomenon. In other cultures, tracing ancestral lines is often a source of great pride and prestige. Once as a teacher, I completed an exercise with a humanities class in which they researched their ancestors. And I was really surprised and how many descendants of illustrious professors, royal people, statesmen, and famous people I actually had sitting in front of me. I remember in my own life as a five-year-old, sitting on nap time, able to share the brilliant news that I was actually descended from Sir Edmund Hillary. It was one of my proudest moments <laughs> in primary school. But... It's interesting, isn't it? We always like to focus on our, on, on our um, illustrious ancestors. But I didn't really like to um, highlight the fact that some of my other ancestors were cattle stealers and sheep thieves. And as my husband likes to remind me, I had a Murphy from Ireland in my family tree. So as a rule of thumb, we like to highlight the illustrious and keep the family skeletons firmly locked away in the family cupboard. But going back to this passage from Matthew, Jesus' genealogy is traced back to his roots in Abraham. But note how it includes five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and Mary. Now, in a strictly patriarchal society, it was actually highly unusual to include women in a genealogy. Women were accorded no such status. Or representation. But even more significantly, each of the first four women 
had fairly sketchy reputations. Tamar posed as a prostitute and had an incestuous relationship with her father-in-law. Rahab was an actual prostitute. Ruth was a Moabite, she wasn't even an Israelite. And Bathsheba was Uriah's wife, with whom David committed adultery before he had her husband killed. Mary alone stands as the faithful servant in whom God's promises are fulfilled. As Tim Keller comments, this is not the type of typical, respectable, spiritual resume. This line of descendants points to the way Jesus ushers in a kingdom of grace. He's not ashamed of women, those of a different race, the immoral, the destitute. This genealogy sends a clear message of grace, that the values of the old world are to be turned upside down. All sinners of any pedigree, any credentials, are welcome members of Jesus' family. So too it stands for us. No sin is so small or too grace, sorry, too gross to be excluded from anyone. From no one can be excluded from a family tree that is dripping with grace. So to summarise the first two points, we can be confident in a hope and faith that is more than wishful thinking. Firstly, it's based on the historical fact, the faithfulness of God in sending his son to earth to end our captivity to sin and darkness. Our hope is based on the saving and faithful work of a real historical man who was fully human and fully divine. And secondly, our hope is based on the work of Jesus in ushering in a kingdom of grace in which we are all invited to participate. But thirdly, looking back to that idea of a cord held taut, intense but confident expectation, what is our hope today? Our hope is waiting with assurance and confidence in his coming again to complete his redemptive work. And while in confident waiting, we actively engage with him in his redemptive work in the world, which he loves and is coming to fully put right. Nothing we do is without eternal significance. Looking at the generation of Jesus' ancestors, each life was a vital link in the chain that led to his birth and the fulfilment of God's rescue plan. Each was a fallen character, as we've seen. None actually had any idea of their high calling or their destiny. None of those people knew of their place in this royal lineage that would change history. And so for us, we too live for a future that we can't see, that is beyond our vision. And this must encourage us to be mindful of the eternal consequences of how we live our daily lives. Nothing we do is beyond the orbit of being significant to God and his purposes. Everything we do, everyone we encounter, is an image bearer. Our relations with each other 
will work either towards shaping them into being a more hopeful or a more hopeless person. We are part of a process either turning people further towards the light and love of God or away towards a place of darkness and exile. It's a sobering thought. It's worth committing each and every moment of our day to God. Now is hope a posture of passively waiting for things to happen which are beyond our control? A Christian writer, Jay Kim, has suggested that Christian hope is actually quite the opposite. It's all about taking action and taking an expectant leap forward. Eugene Peterson translates hope in the message as rolling up your sleeves. Rather than shying away from the world's sorrow, pain and suffering with a passive indifference, instead with resilience and fortitude, we engage with the pain and suffering of the world. As Tim Keller writes, while other worldviews lead us to sit in the midst of life's joys, foreseeing coming sorrows, Christianity empowers its people to sit in the midst of the world's sorrows, tasting the coming joy. So we need to sit and position ourselves alongside the struggles of human existence, resolutely and with compassion. We need to sit amongst those who are suffering and in pain so they can stand as image bearers with dignity. So here's the tension. We are expectant for the final joy and the final victory and yet we have to sit in and embrace the brokenness of the present. Now as I was preparing this talk, I, I asked God for some real personal insight as to how this idea of hope landed in my own life. A couple of weeks ago, I was scheduled to attend a medical appointment with a member of my own family who has some fairly significant health issues. I went along hopeful and expectant of encouragement. Good news. Instead, I came away confronted with the gravity of the situation. And from a medical perspective, not an altogether hopeful journey forwards. Initially, it all seemed pretty hopeless. By nature, I'm a perfectionist. I like things sorted and my expectations fully met. Yet God showed me that hope in him is actually not about that. It's about trusting him even in the messiness of life. That hope is actually not all about what I see and want in the present. It's about remembering his faithfulness to me throughout my life in the past. It's about knowing that God has rescued me from the exile and darkness of fear. That I can leave the burdens at the foot of his cross. Embrace the messiness and brokenness. Not shy away from it. Learning to love and accept the situation. I live in this tension. Yet am still confident in the hope and expectation that one day Jesus is coming to usher in a world where there will be no more tears, no more darkness 
and no more pain. I know the end of the story. We win. Advent is a season of hope for waiting and expectation. We're confident in our hope because Matthew's Gospel reminds us our hope and faith are founded in the real historical figure of Jesus. He represented the fulfilment of God's promises to the nation of Israel. A spiritual family into which we as Christians are now adopted and part of. His arrival represented the end of exile and darkness. Our salvation by grace. We remain hopeful and expectant for the future fulfilment of his redemptive plan in the second coming. While we await that time, we engage with his ongoing work, being able to embrace the brokenness and pain in this current world with love and expectation. And I'd like us just to sit now for a couple of minutes and maybe just pray and think about, ask ourselves a couple of questions. What hopes do we have at the moment? How is our hope based in things of the world? And maybe ask Jesus to show us how we can renew and strengthen our hope in him.